You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. We talked to Maui Mayor Mike Victorino this morning about how the county is managing the health and economic crisis. We also talked about the recent experience with the Colorado cult this past weekend. Love Has Won moved from Kauai and had its sights set to settle on Maui. But first, here's the latest on Maui's COVID numbers. We have four new ones, and all these new cases are actually from the island of Molokai. And so I'm a little disappointed because three weeks ago, a little over three weeks ago, the Department of Health scheduled a Zoom meeting to, to speak to the people of Molokai to warn them that these cases that were beginning to, to show up in Molokai had come from the outside, people returning or having people visiting them from the mainland or returning from Oahu before the quarantine had started, right? And asked everybody to be diligent, you know, don't get together, you know, keep physical distancing. All the night, the whole thing was asked of them. And I've been told that many, you know, some just ignored it and just went away, went ahead and had parties, and now we're having a small surge on the island of Molokai. That, that's not good news. Hopefully uh, people heed those warnings because it is so contagious. We've averaged about two and a half to three new cases a day for the last eight days. So, so I mean, it's nothing to brag because I, I, I like to say when we, were, when we had like 12 days of no new cases, zero every day, now there I feel a little bit comfortable. But I think we are still doing a fairly good job other than the almost part of the expression, the knuckleheads, I call them, that are still not believing or thinking that, oh, we don't have to obey any of these rules or policies or protocols. We, we're, we're, in, we're not vulnerable. We're invincible right now. That's not happening. And we've seen what happened in Oahu, and we sure don't want to see that on the neighbor islands. We've seen a little surge in, in, uh, uh, on the big island, and my heart goes out to them. And look at all the deaths that I, I don't know if all going to be attributed to COVID-19, but, you know, when you have COVID-19, especially in the elderly group, yes, it is, and it can be fatal very quickly. Now, I know Maui had to step in, uh, I guess, uh, over the weekend when you had that situation with the uh, cult, the group from Colorado that was coming from Kauai. Talk about what happened from your end. Well, when we were informed from Kauai that their intentions was to come to Maui and that when I checked our records, there was no listing or any place of lodging, an illegal place of lodging. Uh, I immediately got into action with our police and other officials, other agencies, to make sure they did not end up on Maui. They were going to either go back or end up with a nice orange jumpsuit with some bars in front of them, three square meals a day, maybe a year in, 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 in that facility, and very little privileges, but, you know, we will feed them three times a day. And so we made that very clear when the first group arrived, the three, that they were not welcome, that unfortunately they had no lodging facilities, no legal lodging facilities, and that uh, they had really created a real stir in the Kauai and made people upset there to the point where some vandalism occurred and some other issues that were happening. I'm not at liberty to go into details. And so we didn't want that here and that we'd rather them go home. So turn around, and we did. They went, the three went back to San Francisco on our last flight out of Maui. And uh, the 11 that were on their way here were intercepted in Oahu. And I want to thank uh, Oahu and, and their people and the police and others that made sure that they understood what was going on, and they were put on a plane back to San Francisco out of Oahu. So... It was a collaborative effort, and I want to thank everybody for their hard work, my staff, our police department, our, our other agencies, and I won't go into names of other agencies but who helped put this together under my direction. I wasn't at the airport. There's this rumor that I was stood there right by the gate and ready to shove them back onto the plane. No, that did not happen. I was at my office coordinating all of this, which I felt was more appropriate, and it was taken care of. They never left the holding area, and we were able to get them back on a plane, and Oahu, same thing, and they've gone. And, you know, again, I'm thankful that reasonable heads prevailed and we were able to get this done without any major incident. So I'm thankful for that. What's the underlying message here? Because some folks might be a little bit uncomfortable of this 
uh, I don't know, rise in vigilantism or I, I don't know what, what the best term is to describe it, but it's obviously the community stepping up to say not so fast. Yeah. I'd like to say it is concerned citizens bringing forth their wishes to those they feel are not really people you want here now. Let me, let me start with this. I don't condone vigilantes. I do not. I respect people who try to protect their family and their communities from outsiders who may harm it. But be careful, there's a fine line there. You know, I will support it so long as it doesn't get to a point of any kind of violence, vandalism, things of that nature, then you've crossed the line, and I'm sorry, the law will step in. Now, we don't have eyes and ears in every corner of our communities, and so these community groups that have and inform and, and keep us up to date on what's going on, along with these groups that, you know, they really are smart. They put it all on Facebook or Instagram, showing where they are, what they're doing, and then they wonder why they get caught. Well, stupid is as stupid does, and I'll leave it at that. So with that all being said, my whole take on this is our community is saying right now to those who are coming in without any respect for the Aina, for the vine, for our people, the Kanaka, we don't want you here right now please we are trying to get over this pandemic so we can slowly reopen our our community to you the visitor but we want you to be respectful if you're not respectful we'd rather you not be here and that's that's maybe the best way i can put it in the best terms okay i know uh some folks are saying yeah uh, maui and Kauai dodged a bullet big island dodged a bullet with the carbon cult that we saw earlier uh, this year as well and yeah. it did take a concerted effort, you know, grassroots to kind of flag this to authorities. Obviously, Kauai thought they had to step in, uh, you know, to protect people, both the, the members of the group as well as the residents. Absolutely. And, 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 and we are concerned that, you know, people are getting COVID fatigue. You know, they're tired. They're tired of everything. Open, close, open, close. I mean, Kauai and Maui County have been a little bit more fortunate than, than Oahu and the Big Island lately, right? However, that has come, we've become very close to that. I mean, I know, and Kauai, remember, had a surge after oh, 12, 14 weeks of no new cases. All of a sudden, their cases nearly doubled. So we all understand one misstep, one wrong move, and we're, bam, we're right back to where we were. It's not worse off. And Oahu, you guys got the classic example of what's going on. And so can you blame, yeah, you can point fingers at everybody and everything. But really, if you want my opinion, and I will give you my opinion for what it's worth, it's really you, the people. You, the people, have to decide what you want. If you want to open up and take your chances, then you've got to live with the results. And when we don't have enough medical facilities, when we don't have enough medical personnel, when we are straining every resource we have, then what do you do next? And so that's, you know, really something you've got to rethink really about, ladies and gentlemen. I, I, I put that into my, my community every day is that it's your kuleana, and we all need to work together. And, and, and we'll make it better if we work together for the common good of protecting ourselves, our family, and then our community. We have been watching, you know, the community there, I think, stage some protests uh, on the resuming of the reality TV series at Temptation Island. And I know you've had some uh, mixed feelings about that. Yeah, I, I, I think there I'm going to take a little different approach. I agree. But this is an opportunity for us to test a system which we have talked about. It's not quite the bubble system of resorts that we've, we've, we've been talking about and discussing, and we're looking to start to reopen our economy in an efficient, safe, and healthy method. But this is an opportunity to see how effective we can be. You know, these are all the commitments the company made to us, the film production has made to us. So, like I've been telling the public, let's use this as a test case. This is for lack of a better term, a guinea pig project. Let's see how it works. And if it fails, we don't do it again. If it succeeds, we learn from it and we make it better. But if we continue to put our, bury our head in the sand and don't want to ever start up again, you know there'll be another health issue and there'll be a more catastrophic health issue. It'll be mental health and other physical things that will hit our community. The stress of not having a job, benefits running out. You know, Catherine, we can go on and on and on, and, and it won't change. You've heard it before, and people have heard it again and again. I don't want to repeat it. I'm saying we've got to start looking ahead and saying, 
can we do this safely? And try, but do it in pilots, you know, so that we have pilot programs to see if it works, not just open everything up. Too late then. If something goes wrong, it's really hard, like what you've seen in a while, to pull everything back. Look at how everybody suffered for it. So phasing, systematic, methodical uh, reopening of the economy and testing and piloting different areas and different programs is the, my approach. And, and it's an approach that's worked really well in other areas of the world and the United States. And Maui has taken a hit just because of the impact uh, to the uh, tourist industry. Anything you want to say about that? And, you know, I know that you've got a plan for spending the CARES money to help bolster the economy. We've put millions and millions, up to $66 million, nearly half of that has been committed to small businesses, job training. Um, our La Lima program was helping people with rent and mortgage payments and car payments and insurance and and food and other essentials. Almost half of that money has been put out in these various programs to help small businesses. We're giving small businesses $7,500 grants to help them continue to reopen and retool their businesses. We're giving housing assistance, and you know, I know the state has done that, which is really gratifying. Remember, at the end of July, many people lost their $600 a week additional payment with unemployment. And I and many, other, many of us understood come August, September, October, the real hurt will set in because there will be no money. I mean, all of a sudden people would lose, and you got enough people that haven't even gotten their unemployment. They're still fighting to get that, the pool of funds and all of that. You know, that group is hurt right through, but there's another group that was getting at least enough to take care of them, and all of a sudden come August 1st, bam, the door shuts. And then Congress and others are still arguing about it. And we've got the $300 a week retro back to August 1st. I got you. But even that $200 million will go very quickly. And about two-thirds of the people that deserve something will probably get little or nothing. So here on the neighbor islands, we've always been resilient. You know, we, we've always looked for ways of helping. We have put millions of dollars towards food drives, the food bank, feed my sheep. All of these various groups, churches and nonprofits, you know, my, my, my think is this. When I help many, I help most of the people. You know, I've got to help the many groups to get to most of the people. If we don't get to everybody, our homeless, everybody. I've built little homes, uh, you know, like you guys have in Oahu. But these are actual homes. They're affordable homes that can be put together. And later on, when things get better, we can move them to more sustainable ground. Um, uh, sites where they can utilize that in the future. Got air conditioning. You know, we try to make it where it's comfortable for them. So I'm very proud of what this community, our team, uh, the the people of Maui County, our county council. Uh, you know, even though we have disagreements, and hey, I won't be the first one to say we don't have our differences. However, when it comes to the people, we work for the people. That was Maui Mayor Mike Victorino talking about how the county is faring with this COVID crisis. The mayor's advice is he sees lots of finger pointing, raising tensions across the state. He says, let's stand together to get through this. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. When you're out and about, stay connected on the HPR mobile app. Whether you're on a run, walking the dog, or just doing errands, take Hawaii Public Radio with you. Stream the latest news and talk from HPR One, or experience the soothing calm of classical music on HPR Two. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Available 24-7 right from your smartphone. Available on the App Store or on Google Play. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. 
Take a drive about a half of an hour north from Lanai City, and you will find Kaiolahia, also known as Shipwreck Beach. Stretching roughly eight miles, this section of Lanai coastline is known for its strong winds, powerful currents, and abundant reefs. As you might imagine from its name, the beach is also known for the large number of marine disasters in those treacherous waters. To this day, the withering carcass of a U.S. Navy oiler remains wedged in the reef not far from shore. Asking you about that ship would be too easy for a backyard quiz. So today, we really want to test your knowledge of Hawaii's history. So can you tell us the name of the first known vessel to have been lost to Lanai Shipwreck Beach? And what year did it happen? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. at the top of the hour, we heard Maui Mayor Mike Victorino talk about the efforts to help its homeless population. This morning, HBR's Noe Tanigawa joins us to continue that thread. She's been talking to outreach providers there. Good morning, Noe. Hey, good morning, Catherine. Loved your interview with Mayor Victorino. you got a can-do attitude at work over there, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, the most vulnerable, how are they doing on Maui? You know, according to this year's point-in-time homeless count, there are 862 homeless individuals there in the county. About half of them were unsheltered. About 200 of them are in central Maui, and those are the ones that are pretty much the most visible to the population there. So lucky to have had the opportunity to visit Kahaleakeola, a homeless service organization in Kahului and Lahaina. They run emergency shelters. They do job training and assistance. And they do housing relocation as well. Uh, Monique Ibarra is the executive director at Kahaleakeola. It's called Kako. She says the unsheltered situation on Maui has really evolved since the pandemic started. I kept hearing about Kanaha Beach Park and Amala Place that leads to Kanaha. And I heard how bad it was getting. We checked it out and it was true. There was a lot of individuals over there. They had showers set up. They had a little store set up. They really know, you know, in that place, know how to take care of themselves, but it's not ideal for long-term, obviously. This is why I believe uh, Mayor Victorino built the uh, pallet shelter on Maui to help those individuals. So we went in working along with Family Life Center to get them into permanent housing. So between the two of us, we actually were able to assist quite a bit of families and also the pallet shelter that the uh, county put up. Right. Um, he, Mayor Victorino referred to that, right, Catherine, mm-hmm, when yeah. he spoke with you? Um, it's, it's an effort that's comparable to the post-tent facility HPD set up here in Honolulu at Ke'ehi Lagoon. First responders on Maui put up 23 pallet shelters there at Waiale Park in Wailuku for homeless people who are dealing with COVID. Now, these are not tents. They're eight-by-eight-foot shelters. They've got two beds apiece and air conditioning. They're temporary for singles, couples, or families, and the idea is to move them into permanent housing out of there. You know, it turns out that clearing Kanaha was just part of a wave of housing placements that Maui service providers have accomplished just in the last six months. 
914 placements in permanent housing in six months. That's at least a third more than they usually can accomplish in this safe time span. And, you know, they're kind of asking them, how, how did they do it? For one thing, these social service housing navigators on Maui, boy, they know their beat. They've researched their landlords. They have long-term relationships with these people, and things come up. Plus, Ibarra says, the unheard of is happening. Rents on Maui are going down. Ibarra said vacation rentals are coming online for resident housing, and there are other factors as well. That's Ramad Cumming, director of Maui's Family Life Center in Kahului. She says, yeah, she agrees. Family Life is Maui's key homeless outreach provider. And Cumming says that the pandemic has kind of leveled the playing field for renters. Low-income renters that they help who come in with government support are really starting to look kind of attractive to landlords these days. Still, Cumming says there are some among Maui's unsheltered who, who may not want to enter housing. We have a lot of single white males, probably between the ages of 25 and 55. That is the single largest population. There are families out there, but we try awful hard to get them into shelter as soon as we can. Typically, you know, I think if people still have some kind of connection, what happens a lot that I see is families will take in the children. And so maybe only the mom and dad are in their car. And then they'll get reunited later on when they find a place. Boy, Kathy, you can see the basic stability of housing is just just not there for some families. Now, coming and said she hasn't seen an increase of homeless on the street or a dramatically increased demand for their services. And Ibarra agrees there at Kako. What they have seen is the need is growing for rent and mortgage assistance. Cummings says the whole strategy is to keep families especially in their current homes. I know that um, they're uh, trying to, to deal with that with the rental assistance uh, housing and uh, mortgage assistance. I think the federal government is looking at that too. But uh, yeah, a real interesting uh, snapshot of uh, what's happening with the homeless there on Maui. Thanks so much, Noe. Hey, thank you, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. All right. Happy Aloha Friday to you, too. We have been talking to HBR's Noe Tanigawa. Check out her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Civil Beat brings us an update on our most expensive public works project ever in the islands. Another deadline missed. That's our reality check today. Marcel Henri on the line. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. Happy Aloha Friday. So, gosh, uh, uh, Triple P, <laughs> little hand wringing over that. Yeah, you know, there was um, there were a couple of heart board committee meetings yesterday, and uh, you know, these are all virtual, so I was just checking in along with other members of the public. And um, it's interesting because, as, as you mentioned, you know, we've been talking about uh, public-private partnerships for rail, uh, a, a big one that's been touted as a way to uh, reduce a lot of the risk and just a good approach going forward to try and get this very difficult project uh, through the heart of Honolulu, you know, into the, the urban core. And, they, you know, they've been working on this for a couple of years. And, um the, it's already about a, a year pushed back as far as, as the deadlines that they've been setting. They just keep pushing it back and back and back. And they were finally, you know, they, they did get um, proposals in July, in late July, for from from private firms, basically uh, joint firms, you know, joint ventures that are that are looking uh, to, to bid for this this work. It's valued at at least one point four billion dollars. And so they got those proposals. Uh, then the, the way this typically works is it goes about another month uh, where they evaluate it, and then they'll issue an award. But August 27th came and went. There was no indication of whether they're they're seeking a best and final offer or, frankly, what is going on with this. And sorry, that's a long windup just to say that you know that was two weeks ago, and then they just had some committee meetings yesterday, and uh, you know there there was just some very uh, interesting comments. 
from board members. And it's really, you know, you want to be careful not to totally over-speculate, but at the very best, you know, you could you could say these might be conservative comments, uh, just to try and uh, you know, uh, basically uh, uh, being as cautious, you know, as possible. Uh, but at, at worst, it might be cryptic as far as you know what they they might be aware of behind the scenes and, and how the process has been going. Basically, just questioning whether or not this P3 process is going to actually succeed at the end of all of this and, and what that might mean going forward. Yeah, so it's, it sounded like they were saying, what is going to be our plan B if we don't have an announcement here pretty quick about who's going to do this uh, private-public partnership? Right, and, and plan B would generally entail a design-build process. That's kind of a, a very uh, typical term, you know, how they do a lot of these, these giant capital projects where one firm does both the design and the, the building work. Um, and so whether they would revert back to that versus kind of this more complicated, structured P3 deal, uh, the, the problem is that would take at least eight months to do a re-procurement based on what the Hart executive director is saying. And we still don't know what the federal government's going to do, right? That's looming in the background as well. You know, they've, they've been very patient. Um, Honolulu, you know, they have this deal with with the city, $1.55 billion uh, grant agreement. And, you know, the the city's basically been in breach for a very long time now. It hasn't gotten any federal funding for uh, the past five years or so. And it's looking to take these steps with this P3 deal to to finally get that that funding going. Uh, But, yeah, FTA is, is watching. Hart is trying to say, look, they'll be very flexible. You know, we're not the only ones dealing with with issues related to COVID-19 right now. Uh, but it, it really just remains to be seen how they would react if the, the you know, this long-touted P3 uh, effort basically fizzles. Yeah, because we're going to be needing some more money with our uh, hotel room tax, uh, you know, not in good shape at this point. Yeah. And the excise tax. The, right. Right. They need that federal money, um, you know, for, for cash flow. They're, they're facing a cash crunch. So all of these pieces have to fit together. And there's just so much uncertainty right now as to whether that's going to happen. Yeah, just we need more hand-wringing. But I guess that's, uh, you know, those are the breaks. That's what COVID brings, and, and we've got to get through this. So we'll be anxiously waiting to see if there was an announcement about uh, P3 or not in the weeks to come. Exactly. All right. Thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. To read his transportation stories, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, COVID has caused some people to wash up less. I do shower less often, and I don't wear deodorant as often as I used to. Plus the miraculous tricks of moss, like how they reinflate after a much needed rain. It's fast. It's within seconds. They open back up, actually change color before your eyes. All on the next Science Friday. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu with a message to stay safe and to protect one another and oneself, committed to the safety of ohana and community. Kahalaresort.com. The Hawaii Supreme Court is being asked to step in to deal with the situation involving the state health department's contact tracing program on behalf of Hawaii's kupuna. The Kokua Council advocates for seniors and this week filed a petition with the High Court. Here's Attorney Lance Collins explaining why it felt it had to take this legal action. So the petition broadly argues two separate things, but fundamentally the governor's emergency proclamations, all 12 of them, say that all persons shall comply with CDC guidelines. 
There's no exemptions. There's no exceptions. All persons shall comply with CDC guidelines. And some of CDC's guidelines have to do with contact tracing. And in this instance, the Department of Health is not following the CDC guidelines. And the emergency proclamation says that all persons shall comply with the CDC guidelines. And so I think on a very fundamental level, what Kokua Council is asking the court to do is to enforce the governor's emergency proclamation against the Department of, the, of Health. The two sort of specific issues that that ties into is one is hiring a sufficient number of contact tracers to actually engage in contact tracing. And the other is both required under CDC guidelines and also under required under state law is to provide oral language services and translations to individuals of limited English proficiency in their primary language. Um, and that's important for a whole bunch of reasons. This is a, a new virus. It's called the novel coronavirus <laughs> because it's new. And so uh, that means that, that in general, people don't really know how to handle either being exposed to the virus or being infected by it. And so the need for health information related to the virus and how to deal with it if you've been exposed or you're infected uh, is even more critically important. And it's also very important in terms of contact tracing uh, that uh, that there be individuals associated with the Department of Health, either as contact tracers or helping contact tracers, speak to individuals who have been exposed or who are uh, positive and to be able to meaningfully trace all the contacts. And if you can't do that, then you're not really doing contact tracing. And at this moment, contact tracing is really one of the most fundamental tools uh, that the Department of Health has in order to stop the spread of COVID-19. And the other issue that you folks have raised is the need to outreach uh, to the Pacific Islander groups and, and I guess the seniors in those communities. It, it's not outreaching, it's being able to do the contact tracing in those communities. And the only way that you can really meaningfully do it for individuals of limited English proficiency is to do it in their primary language. And not only does the CDC require it uh, in their guidelines, uh, but it's also required by state law. You know, from Kukua Council's perspective, you know, the, there may not be very many seniors in, in these communities, but if you can't stop community spread where, it's, where it exists, it's going to reach all seniors. It's going to reach all people. And that's why this is, issue is not just an issue for, it doesn't just affect people of limited English proficiency. It affects everybody because coronavirus doesn't only target one group or another. It basically is highly contagious. And so limiting community spread is basically one of our top ways of, of limiting people from, from getting infected by it. And if you and, and presently, uh, Pacific Island Nation peoples and Filipinos um, are the have the highest rates of infection, way beyond their percentage in the general population. So it's even more important that the Department of Health employ uh, appropriate contact tracing methods, like with translator, with interpreters, uh, or translated materials, to both be able to do meaningful contact tracing and also inform people of what they need to do. We're told that they have put out translated materials, and you're saying that's just not enough. That's just not enough. I mean, okay, so they recently put up some brochures on their website. People are looking at their website. But, you know, the more important thing is the oral interpretive services and having the contact tracers be able to communicate with individuals who are exposed or are infected and do contact tracing that way. And that's not something where you can just put a two-page brochure up on a website. You, you need to actually communicate with people and find out what's going on. And also, uh, in that process, that's the primary way where the state is able to inform individuals and answer questions that individuals might have related to um, how to take care of themselves and how to limit community spread. And it's just not adequate to tell somebody, okay, well, we can't really contact trace with you because we can't really communicate with you. And by the way, can you go onto our website and look for your language so that you can understand what you need to do? And if you have questions, sorry, we can't answer them because we don't have anybody who can communicate with you. I mean, it just, it's, it, it's nonsense. And in your filing, you 
make note of certain dates as to when the Department of Health uh, said they had enough contact tracers. And yet we saw a series of events. The, the unions stepped in. They were basically saying, you're saying you have enough contact tracers, but in, in reality you don't. So it's been really hard to get the information. That's right. The department has provided a whole host of different numbers that <laughs> over over the last couple of months. And what we know is that NACHO, which is the National Association of City and County Health Officials, has said for our population in Hawaii, we need at a minimum during the COVID emergency, we need a minimum of 420 contact tracers. And as of last Friday, the Department of Health, if, if the numbers are correct, and I, you know, of course, they say one thing, and then somebody else who has information from the department comes out and files a complaint, and it's much lower, they say that they had 212. So 212 is half of the number that the National Association for City and County Health Officials believe is necessary for our population to be able to meaningfully do contact tracing and try to limit the spread of COVID. So I think even giving the Department of Health benefit of the doubt, 50% of what's needed is, is still an F. They're failing. And I guess what was the straw that broke the camel's back that just prompted Kukua Council to take this legal action? On August 20th, when the governor issued his 12th emergency proclamation, he noted that there were about 5,600 infections, um, uh, COVID, COVID cases. And um, as of the filing yesterday, there were 10,025. Um, that, you know, it's basically doubled in two weeks. Um, and it's outrageous and it's frightening. It's, it's, it's very frightening uh, for seniors uh, who potentially have underlying health conditions that the state has completely abdicated all responsibility to do the one thing, the one thing that the CDC says is fundamental in trying to limit the spread more than any other thing, and that's contact tracing. It doesn't violate anybody's rights. It doesn't force anybody to do anything. But it, what it allows is it allows the government to inform all persons who have been exposed and to try to encourage those individuals to get tested in, in a way that can al allow the spread to be limited. And if the state were doing meaningful contact tracing and the state were doing a sufficient number of testing, uh, we wouldn't be in the situation where we're in a perpetual state of lockdown and everybody has, you know, people with underlying health conditions and, and the elderly have to fear for their lives. That was Maui Attorney Lance Collins, who this uh, week filed a petition with the Hawaii Supreme Court to step in on a controversy over contact tracing on behalf of the state's elderly. No word yet on a hearing date. Earlier in the show, we took you to the Lanai to visit the treacherous shipwreck beach for our backyard quiz. Not so friendly to the average swimmer, the beach is notorious for its fierce winds, strong currents, and large reefs. When standing on the shore and peering out into the sea, you'd probably find it easy to understand why people have attached the nickname to the area's proper name, Kai Olohia. To this day, there are remains of lost ships, such as a gigantic U.S. naval oil vessel that sits wedged into a section of reef. Today, we asked if you could name the first ship to be swallowed by the waters near Shipwreck Beach and also tell, you, uh, and also tell us what year the, sh the sinking occurred. The answer, the British vessel Alderman Wood in the year 1824. Congratulations to Bert from Pupukea. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors the Kahala Hotel and Resort and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. On the next On Being, Zen priest Angel Kyoto Williams on social evolution and human wholeness. There is something dying in our society, in our culture, and there's something dying in us individually. And what is dying, I think, is the willingness to be in denial. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Sunday morning at 10, following the New Yorker Radio Hour. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, dedicated to the idea that everyone should have a decent place to live and committed to bringing people together to build homes. HonoluluHabitat.org All this week we've been talking about the possibilities of breadfruit. Today we wind up our pohana with a look at ulu spirits, in particular breadfruit vodka, ulukila, which won gold in a recent competition. Royal Hawaii Distillery is located off Dillingham Boulevard here on Oahu, and for the past five years has been experimenting with a variety of alcoholic beverages from your locally favorite fruit. The company has won bronze before for its spirits, and its pineapple liqueur recently won silver. We talked to master distiller Carol Khan, who tapped his roots in the Czech Republic and his love for spirits to develop what he hopes will become the tequila of the Pacific. Yes, we are trying to make this tequila of Pacific, but it's much better, better on flavor, either on age or age. If it's age as a brandy, it has better quality than age tequila, let's say uh, rum or whiskey together. You will have to try it. And then it's also different if you use the fresh ulu, if you use also, let's say, harvested uh, steam and frozen ulu, or if you use, uh, you know, ulu flour. So again, that will make three different uh, profiles as well, and you will have uh, get asked to taste anything from lemon to guava, you know, and stuff, and anything between. So again, very sophisticated profile from the ulu, doesn't matter you know, how you prepare the ulu. We'll talk about this gold medal that you won. Is that made with fresh ulu? Well, this one is actually made from a flour made in Samoa. I got FDA permission to import it from Samoa. So I still have about 1,000 pounds of the flour. It's the best flour ever. You can also use it as the best hurricane preparedness food because if it's dry, it will last 10, 15 years in your dry cabinet. And when it's emergency, you just mix it with water and you will eat it like a ulupoi, you know, so you can eat it and you get all the vitamins and amino acid and fiber and stuff like that. So it's uh, almost like space astronaut food. <laughs> and then if you have any leftover and if it's hot and, and it gets fermented, it's even better because the fermentation will produce alcohol, what will make the disinfection of the ulu in next day or next 30 days. So you can eat the poi like this little beer inside. So again, the best hurricane or any emergency food you can carry in, in your household. And it makes the best ulu vodka. Uh, you know, vodka is uh, a little, I don't know, overrated because vodka you can make from ulu, you can make it from whiskey, from potato, sweet potato, from the sugar cane, and it's just ethyl alcohol, but it's distilled uh, over 190 proof and then diluted in 40%. The difference is only with different companies, they will put little seasoning there, including citric acid and sugar, so it stays a little different. Or for smoothness, it's extra distillation, or extra uh, filtration. So if you are at home and you buy the cheapest $6 vodka and put it over charcoal, you will get $30 vodka. If I get same $6 vodka with one redistillation, it will taste like $200 Grey Goose vodka. So again, vodka can be from anything because it's stripped from all the flavors and aroma. Our breadfruit is spirit. And spirit means it still have the essence of the body, of the original ingredients. 
So if you have the ulu, it still ha- have the flavors and aroma from the ulu. In vodka, everything is stripped out. So again, we can make the vodka for people. But again, if I make grain vodka, good one, and ulu vodka, there is no difference. But if I make a good spirit or liquor from ulu, or mix it with whiskey or with rum, or make it as brandy, that's when you get the all the flavors, aroma, all the sophistication, all the smoothness, all the quality for good cocktails and stuff like that. So again, vodka, it's not so good. Nothing against people who like vodka. It's just pure ethyl alcohol. Your operation there, at the start of COVID, you stepped up and began making a hand sanitizer, right? Yes, we, we have to because, again, there was a lot of people and essential workers and they don't have sanitizer, so we cannibalize our good alcohol in order to make the sanitizer. Sanitizer has to be at least 60% of alcohol. That's the CDC sanitizer. The WHO sanitizer approved has to have at least 80%. So, for example, you need two bottles of cheap 80 proof or 40% vodka to get one bottle of 80% sanitizer. So you need to redistill the stuff at least 80% or most likely at 95 and dilute it to 80. And then when you add the glycerol and the hydrogen peroxide, you can get the WHO approved sanitizer. And that's what the essential workers needed at the start of the COVID because they didn't have time right. to go to the line to Walmart or Costco yes. and just take chance if they have sanitizer because they work shift or double shift and they have no time for that. Right. So so you stepped up and really uh, filled a need for the community early on when there was a demand no, for not this. Only, not only us, we are just tiny distillery, but we help all our neighborhoods. They are another bigger distillery who step more and they try help as much, even more than us. But we yes feel the needs around us to all, let's say, the policemen in our neighborhood and uh, you know, post offices and let's say Army National Guard and Department of Health and again all the essential workers plus the public who whoever needed at the time at least we have that at the time where again nobody else has them. Right. Well, thank you for for doing that for the community. Now you're products, though, you can customize spirits for special occasions, right? For weddings, anniversaries, that kind of thing? Yes, for birthday, baby wow, you can you can get it also for your bar, restaurant, club, and in other business. You can get a personal, a personalized label. You can get the recipe. So if you like uh, chilled stuff, we put uh, uh, more alcohol, less sugar, stuff like that. If you want to put it into cocktail, we put more sugar, for example, if this is for cocktail making, we can put the flavor. So, for example, our uh, famous ahi tuna fish vodka, maybe not smell the best, but it's very smooth. You will don't get bad bread when you, <laughs> when you swallow, but you can make the best Bloody Mary ever with that. Wow. If you don't like the ahi tuna, you can also use our bacon vodka with uh, nori seaweed vodka. It will make same effect, the best blood Mary ever you 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 had in your life. Well, but I, again, I, I'll take you your can, word for you it. You can also like ginger, and you can get ginger spirit into your Moscow mule. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, I uh, commend you for your creativity. Hopefully, you're on your way to making Ulu the tequila of the Pacific. We're trying. It will help also the farmers or anybody who who wants to get extra income. It will also help the community, you know, because if people, uh, you know, grow more Ulu, it's again... It's really rich on starch. You have more starch than corn and rice and potato together. So again, it's good food. And again, the leftover can be distilled for the spirit and vodka and brandy. And again, it might help this local economy. And maybe it can be exported. It could be served in Waikiki hotels as a local specialty because again, the uh, visitors usually come, they're looking for, for locally made alcohol, and the bar and restaurant still serving only all male and stuff, you know, not caring about anybody else. So, again, that will be the distinct wish 
a service what they can do to help local economy. That was Master Distiller Karel Khan talking about Ulu Spirits, Ulukila on this Aloha Friday. The distillery is generally open for tasting, but the COVID restrictions could affect that. Best to call and make a reservation. The Bounty Vodka products are expected to be available in California and New York, in addition to here in the islands. You know, as we wrap up this deep dive on Ulu, we would like to share the feedback that's come in this week. Hi, this is uh, Mike McCoy calling from Kona. I enjoyed listening to the show today about Ulu. We have several Ulu trees at our place in Kona and have planted uh, several of the Mahafala Samoan varieties that Diane Raboni mentioned. I wanted to also mention there are ways other than refrigeration to preserve breadfruit. My wife, who is uh, from Sadawal Island in Yap and Malpiaiduk's niece, taught the members of Nakalai on the Big Island how to preserve breadfruit for their voyage of the canoe Makali'i to Mokumanamana last year. In many Pacific Islands, uh, breadfruit that is abundant can be harvested during the season and stored in large pits where it ferments. Then we prepare it later for consumption. The clean fermented ulu can have the consistency of mashed potatoes and can be cooked in numerous ways after cleaning. Here in Hawaii, we use food-grade plastic buckets rather than pits in the ground, but uh, the end result is the same. It's really great. Aloha. And David wrote in after yesterday's segment with Dana Shapiro of the Breadfruit Collective. After listening to your show, I want to plant one in my yard, but don't have access to a starter tree. I was interested in knowing if there are any resources for ulu plants. Well, David, the National Tropical Botanical Gardens Breadfruit Institute would be a good place to start. Uh, we will list the website on our page after the show and the phone numbers. And also keep an eye out for tree giveaways around Labor Day or Arbor Day later this year. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we hope to hear how Kauai is coping. Call our talk back line. Tell us what you think. 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. You can also find us on Instagram on The Conversation HPR. Visit our conversation page and listen back to our shows. Our program produced by Lillian Sang, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. The Backyard Quiz theme written by uh, John DeMello. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>